Today's reading is from uh, Mark chapter 10. If you join me, follow along in your Bibles. From verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. 
And taking twelve again, he began to tell them what was about to happen, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them? And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as they were leaving Jericho with his disciples and a, and a great crowd... Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Father in heaven, we ask for your help now. We ask for your spirit's help because we need to see clearly how difficult and hard the words of your son are in this passage. We need to feel the weight of everything he is asking for us so that we might then throw ourselves on the mercy of your son. Help us to see this clearly and help me, I pray I beg that you would help me to be clear and to, to be clear for all of us so that we can see how great your son is as we see the proper weight of the impossible task and the impossible commands that he places before us. Father, we pray that you help us to do this, that we might see the glory of your son properly. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Every now and then, when I'm trying to find a sermon illustration, 
I jump online and just Google what I'm looking for. Uh, there are some interesting websites, sermonillustration.com. Every now and then, I might find something of use. So for today's sermon, I wanted to go and find an illustration of something impossible, a story of someone realizing that something they wanted to do was just impossible. But I couldn't find it. Every illustration I found online was about overcoming the impossible. In an ironic twist, it was impossible to find an illustration about something that is impossible. And when you think about it, that kind of makes sense. We don't like being told that something is impossible. We want to keep breaking through that barrier, to think that our human potential is only limited by our imagination. We don't like being told that something is impossible to do. And yet, when we come to this chapter here, chapter 10 of the Gospel of Mark, we find out that there are things that Jesus requires of us which just seem impossible to do. Things that the disciples and those around Jesus just cannot seem to do. We begin in chapter uh, chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, uh, where we see Jesus set a really high bar when it comes to knowing and applying God's law. Uh, First, we have the Pharisees coming onto the scene in verse 2. Again, it's been a little while since we've heard from them, and back into the story they come. And they've come again to test Jesus. Remember, all the way back in chapter 3, the Pharisees had made up their minds to plot with Herod to destroy Jesus. And now here they are again to test him with a tricky question. They raise up the question of divorce. Now, why this particular topic? You ever wondered why they just suddenly come up with this random question about divorce? It's because last time the words divorce and remarriage get mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, someone lost their head. John the Baptist died because of his stand and conviction on divorce and remarriage. John ended up dead because of what he had to say about it. So if they can get Jesus to trip up on this topic, then maybe they can get Herod to take care of their Jesus problem. So they ask Jesus in verse 2, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? To which Jesus responds with a question of his own. What did Moses command you? You know, it's often fascinating how often Jesus answered a question with a question of his own. And with this question, he not only springs their trap set by them, but he sets up his kind of own trap as well. What did Moses command? Pharisees reply, well, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, Moses said that we could write a certificate of divorce to our wives. And now Jesus brings his own trap. It's the context trap. Guys, have you not read the context of this law? What, why did Moses allow you to divorce? Because of your hard-heartedness. Moses says that this law isn't a good one because it's there for a bad reason. You want to know if it's right to divorce? Let me take you back to creation. God created man and woman, and then when they are married, God makes them one flesh and what God has joined together let not man separate marriage is something created by God and humans are not free to tinker with it 
It seems a little later in verse 10, the disciples are with Jesus in a house and they get some more explanation on this. So Jesus makes it really clear in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 10. Getting divorced and remarried is an act of adultery. This is, re- this is a really serious issue. Divorce isn't just a legal issue. It's actually a Ten Commandments issue. The Pharisees do not interpret the law properly in this case. They have not read it in context and they do not see the gravity of the issue. Now, do you notice here in these verses that Jesus gives no caveats here? There's no footnote, there's no asterisks with a little exception clause or extenuating circumstances for when divorce is okay. Now, it's not the only word on divorce in the New Testament, but why is Jesus so black and white here? Remember at the end of chapter 9, Jesus had some very serious things to say, very serious language to describe how serious sin was. Again, Jesus is using some very blunt language to describe how serious this issue is. I think sometimes we wish that Jesus would say something softer on this issue, show a little bit more compassion. There have been in the past people who have been at our church who have been divorcees. There are marriages here and people who visit every so often whose marriages are in deep trouble. But Jesus gives no soft landing. He wants us to feel the serious edge of his words. A failure to deny yourself, even in marriage conflict, is a deadly serious issue. Divorce and remarriage is adultery. The the Pharisees, they had set the bar low when it came to divorce and denying yourself. Jesus sets the bar seriously high. Now, we jump down to verse 17, where we meet a man who seems to have it all together, who even says he has jumped over that high bar. In, In comes this man with a brilliant question, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, take a moment for yourself, have a think, how would you answer that question? What would be the first thing you would say? How would you point that person? Maybe you would point him to how eternal life is found in trusting God's grace, knowing that you cannot earn it yourself. Eternal life is a gift from God, knowing that you have sinned against him, but that he is also merciful to those who ask forgiveness. Do you notice where Jesus goes? In verse 19, he repeats the Ten Commandments. Specifically, he command the commandments 5 through 10. Now, this is a bit odd. Instead of pointing people to trust in him, instead of pointing this man who asks a great question to trust in him, he points in, instead of pointing to the grace of God, Jesus points this man to doing good works. There's something else going on. Notice a few details in this story. Uh, Jump back to verse 18. We're doing a bit of jumping, sorry about that. Go back to verse 18. See how Jesus first responds to this man. Read with me. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And notice this man's reply to Jesus, telling him to keep the Ten Commandments in verse 20. Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. Jesus says in verse 18 that only God is good. And then in verse 20, this man comes back and says, I have been good. He thought he was good enough. Second, notice that Jesus repeats commandments 5 through 10. 
But he's left out commandments 1 to 4. Commandments 5 to 10 deal with our horizontal relationships, all the laws, that, all the, the commandments that relate to how we relate to each other. But commandments 1 to 4 deal with our relationship with God, how we worship Him. See, what's going on here is this man thinks that he is good enough, but Jesus puts his finger on the real problem. This man does not love God. So when Jesus asks him in verse 21 to sell up everything and follow him, it's too much to ask. He's got two loves that are competing for his affection, two masters that he wants to serve, but he cannot please them both. He cannot serve them both. So he loves one over the other. And in this case, he ends up loving his money more than he loves God. He cannot properly love God because he loves something else more. And so the man walks away disappointed. And Jesus turns to his disciples. You see that? You see that? If you've got money, it's basically impossible to come into my kingdom. In fact, it's easier for a massive camel to be squeezed through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Now, if you've been around churches for any length of time, you might have heard this little story or this little picture explained that Jesus is talking about a a little gate in the wall of Jerusalem and camels have to shuffle through it on their knees if they all unload all their cargo. Has anyone heard this before? Okay, if you haven't, good. If you have, you need to get rid of this picture because there's no evidence of this little gate at all. The story began circulating around the 15th century. We don't know why, but there's actually no evidence of this at all. And it doesn't make any sense. Why would you create such a gate you know, and then why would you take such a big animal through it, through something small like that? Jesus means to use this illustration as a ridiculous picture of impossibility. How easy is it for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God? As easy as squeezing a massive camel through the eye of a needle. That is to say, impossible. Now, if that's true, then who can be saved? That's the exact questions the disciples ask. Jesus comes back to them. With man, it is possible, but with God, all things are possible. But how? How will God do this impossibility? It's a question that you, the reader, you're asking, but it just doesn't get answered right now. Instead, Peter focuses his attention on himself and the other disciples. We've left everything for you, and now you're saying that it was a stupid and foolish thing to do? Can you imagine giving up your job, your career, your life, moving away from your friends and your family to follow a man you believe is the savior of the world, and now he is saying that getting into his kingdom is basically impossible what are we doing here you know in verses 29 and 30 jesus gives them something there is compensation giving up everything for the sake of the gospel will not fail to be repaid god knows what you've lost and god will add a hundredfold in return and in the life to come you give things up for the gospel you suffer persecution for carrying jesus cross and you are rewarded 
And notice the language that Jesus uses, the language of losing family and gaining a bigger family. He's talking about the church family. Uh, I'm reminded of a testimony told of a Muslim convert who was disowned by his family. He came to church that Sunday. Many, having heard what happened, surrounded him with love and hugs. And he smiled and announced, this is my family. But even so, with all that Jesus had said so far, can I gently suggest that this compensation feels a bit hollow? If you extend our passage back far enough, Jesus has basically been teaching what it means to deny yourself. And denying yourself is super hard. And if you're wealthy, it's even harder, near impossible. There is a reward, especially for those who lose family in this process, but it It seems like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. A nice gesture, but how can it be real? So if it's virtually impossible for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God, what about the disciples? I mean, they've been with him now for quite some time. Surely they've got an inside track, right? Well, in our passage, we've got two incidences that show that even though they've been with Jesus for this long, They haven't been listening or responding to Jesus. They just can't seem to listen to him. The first is back in verse 13 to 16. Children are wanting to come up to Jesus, but the disciples are shoving them off. It was only back in chapter 9, verse 36 and 37, that Jesus said, you've got to welcome little ones like children. Come on, guys. It was only yesterday that Jesus said that. Did they just totally forget and not hear when Jesus had said that? Then you jump down to verse 32 and 34, and here we have Jesus again for the third time in as many chapters, telling his disciples about his impending death and resurrection. And again, the disciples seem amazed and afraid, but they don't do anything with this information. They don't ask what Jesus means, what what he was for, why Jesus would do all that. They just, just don't seem engaged. In fact, they seem a little preoccupied. You know, I'm pretty guilty sometimes of paying a little bit too much attention to my phone, and then all of a sudden I hear a noise. Sounds like a voice. Sounds like the voice of Steph. (laughs) Stephen, did you hear that? Yeah, yeah, sure. What? (laughs) Remember last week, Jesus speaks about his death and resurrection And the disciples are just too preoccupied taking selfies, working out who among them was the greatest. And in verses 35 to 37, you again have the same thing. But this time, John and James, James and John, they come to Jesus with a big request. Let us sit at your left hand and your right hand. Basically, please promote us to first place among the disciples. Please give us the honor, the titles, the career advancement. Put us in first place. We want to be first. Remember, John is the most beloved disciple. James is his brother. If there were two people who could be first place next to Jesus, it would be the best friend, the BFF, and the brother. Well, they're certainly showing some ambition and initiative. I mean, initiative is something I'm always looking for in future leaders. If you take the initiative to be doing things without me telling you, I'm like, hey, you, you sound like a good guy, leadership material. They're even pretty eager. You see, Jesus asked them in verse 37, essentially, are you able to do what I'm going to do, suffer and die? And they say, yes. 
This is like a job interview where you make big promises about performance, hoping to get selected. And again, the response from Jesus disappoints. You can almost see Jesus laugh a little at their eagerness. (laughs) Yes, boys, there will come a time where you'll get there. You will suffer like me. But to sit at my right hand and left hand, that's not for me to grant. Now, at this point, the other ten disciples, they hear about this and they get really mad at John and James because John and James got in there first. (laughs) Damn it, they beat us to Jesus. In the middle of this point, scoring fight between the disciples, Jesus comes in with a really hard principle. First, in verse 42, he reminds them, you know, Gentile rulers, they love to throw their authority around. Everybody wants to get to the top. When you make it to the top, then you want to remind everyone that you're top dog. You know, in the past 10 years in Australian politics, we've had constant wrestles for leadership from both major parties. Right? The Labour Party switched from Kevin Rudd to Julius Gillard back to Kevin Rudd. And then when Kevin Rudd retired, two guys fought for the leadership. It got a little bit spiteful in the media. And eventually Bill Shorten got elected as leader of the opposition. And then the Liberal Party, we had Tony Abbott, the elected Prime Minister. Well, he wasn't very popular, so they booted him out. And then Malcolm Turnbull, who everyone loved, he got voted in. And then they realised that not everyone likes Malcolm Turnbull, so he got booted out. And then three people challenged for his position. Julie Bishop, Peter Dutton, and Scott Morrison. Eventually, Scott Morrison won. Everyone wants to be in that position of power, and everyone does what they can to get there, including nasty politics, backstabbing, internal fighting, saying pretty awful awful things about each other in the media. And here's Jesus, and he says, No, you are not to be like that. They all do that, but it will not be the same with you. You guys are arguing about who is the greatest? Well, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you've got to be a servant. Greatness in my kingdom is not measured by who is in first place with the most votes. Greatness is measured by those who serve others. There is no act too generous, no service too lowly that is beyond any of us. Followers of Jesus look look like people who are constantly and sacrificially putting others before themselves. Now, the natural question at this point is, how far? How far is too far? How far do I go in serving people? Now, that's a good question, right? We need to work out, work this out so that we can love and serve people for the long term so that we don't get burned out. But if Jesus says, be a servant, and your first question is how far, you might have a heart that wants to be first. You go back to verse 31. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Those who put themselves first, those who want to be above others, those who want to be served, they will end up last in God's kingdom. 
But those who put themselves last, those who are happy to be a servant, a slave to all, they will be granted first place. They will be the ones who get to sit right next to Jesus. But can we do it? Really? Can we really be that sacrificial, that servant-hearted? Remember last week, we we saw in chapter 9 that one of our great problems is that we want glory. We want recognition for our service. Serving is not enough. We want praise and applause. We get disappointed or discouraged if people do not appreciate how truly gifted we are. And gosh, when you look at back over the last past couple of chapters, in this kind of relatively choppy part of Mark's gospel, one theme does seem to string them all together. You know, back in chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said that if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And the theme ever since that statement has basically been this. Following Jesus is essential to being in his kingdom, but it's impossible to do. Denying yourself means taking radical action against sin. But if we're honest, we tend to nurture and justify our sins. Denying yourself means listening to Jesus and obeying his words. But if even the disciples, his closest friends, were deaf and preoccupied with themselves, what hope do we have? Denying yourself means not twisting God's word to suit your hard hearts like the Pharisees did. And it means not loving anything, even money, financial security, or possessions above God like that young man did. But... I suspect we're pretty good at massaging scripture to suit our lives and loving many things above God. Denying yourself means laying down your life to serve others first, to be a slave to everyone. And I don't think anyone can honestly say that their hearts have always been in it 100% of the time. The first are not good at being last. The entrance gate to Jesus' kingdom is about as wide as the eye of a needle and we're all fat camels trying to squeeze through first. And it's not just that we fail, but there's also a penalty to failure. For failure to deny ourselves, failure to take radical action against sin deserves hell. We know we need to follow Jesus. But everything we've read so far makes it seem impossible to do. Are you feeling that? Are you feeling the... It's only after we feel the weight of this that the solution will be as glorious as it truly is. If you do not see how great our problem is, then we will not see Jesus in his proper splendor and glory. We deserve hell. That much is clear. But in our final part of today's passage, we see Jesus offer mercy. In the last story of chapter 10, we encounter a blind man, the second blind man that we have seen in recent weeks. The first one was back in chapter 8. You remember that guy? How Jesus had to heal him twice. The first time he was healed, but he ended up seeing people walking around looking like trees. And then he had to heal him again. Now we have blind Bartimaeus. 
And it's no coincidence that Mark introduces him now. The blind men are kind of bookends to this section, helping us to see not only our real problem, but also the real solution. The first blind man showed us that the problem, our problem is that we think we see Jesus clearly, but we actually don't. The second blind man, Bartimaeus, shows us everything we need to do. Yeah, have a look at it. Bartimaeus, firstly, he recognizes properly who Jesus is. Remember back in chapter 8, the people thought Jesus was Elijah. They thought he was one of the prophets. They thought it was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Maybe another prophet. Bartimaeus sees Jesus properly, the son of David. That's what he cries out twice in verse 47 and verse 48. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus knew that Jesus was the true king of Israel. Second, unlike the rich ruler, Bartimaeus doesn't want to be told what he needs to do to get eternal life. He's simply crying out for mercy. He knows that he cannot earn anything. He's got nothing to offer. Then notice in verse 50, number 3, notice that when Bartimaeus is called over to meet Jesus, what does he do? He throws off his cloak. He jumps up and he runs to him. The beggar leaves everything behind, which for a beggar isn't much. But he does not love his possessions more than he wants Jesus. Fourth, notice in verse 50 that Jesus asks the same question the exact same phrasing as he asked John and James back in verse 36. Verse 36, what do you want for me? What do you want me to do for you? Same question. Back in verse 37, John and James wanted to be first. They wanted glory. Here in verse 51, Bartimaeus just wants to see. Finally, notice in verse 52 that after giving him mercy, Jesus tells him to go his way, and Bartimaeus chooses to follow Jesus. In chapter 8, that blind man was sort of a real-life parable of our own spiritual condition. Bartimaeus' story right here does something similar. If you have nothing going for you and nothing to offer Jesus, you can only call on him for mercy. And mercy is given to restore sight. We receive the mercy of having our spiritual sight restored. Bartimaeus wanted to see, and by mercy, we get to see Jesus properly. And that mercy is possible because Jesus came to serve and not to be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. I deserve hell. I deserve God's wrath and judgment. But I receive mercy because Jesus takes God's wrath and judgment for me. I receive mercy like a blind beggar, and then I follow Jesus like a healed person. And then you kind of enter into this loop. Right? We begin with Jesus' instructions. Deny yourself, lose your life, be last of all. Keep doing that for a while, and you recognize that it's impossible by, with man. By our own self-effort, we cannot do it. By mercy, we trust Jesus' substitution and opening of our spiritual lives. And that makes discipleship possible. It makes denying ourselves, losing our lives, being last of all possible. With man, it is impossible, but with God's mercy, all things are possible. That's how I can do it. That's how Jesus can fulfill his words. 
When we fail, we, and we will, we remember again that by our own effort, we cannot do these things alone. The solution then is to not whip ourselves and try harder. It's again and again to look to the cross of Jesus where he substituted himself and gave us spiritual sight. And around and around we go. Now, over the past few weeks, there have been some massive challenges laid out for us. And as tempting as it would be to now begin going, okay, let's see how, how, what we can apply. Let me give you a few suggestions. I'm, I'm tempted to just end it there. Because the point of this passage today is to remind us that following Jesus is impossible in our own strength. And praise Jesus that we can trust his mercy and his ransom for us. And that compels us to follow him. I don't want to tell you what to do. We need to feel the weight of the fact that we can't do it. We need to trust Jesus. And then we follow him. Let me pray. Father in heaven, with man, with ourselves, it's impossible. We can't do it. And so we cry out for mercy. We cry out for something that we cannot and do not deserve. And we thank you that Jesus has paid the ransom in our place. Help us to be thankful for that. And then help us to follow him. Help us to work out what that might look like with all the challenges we've heard in your word over the past three to four weeks. And we pray that you'll give us this insight to keep living joyfully for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.